When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Welcome to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with the Naked Scientists. This time we talk to a starship designer, take a look at Google's new satellite and meet the European astronaut who almost drowned in space. I had a pretty good feeling that it was going to be a problem when the water covered my eyes and my nose. Our studio guest is Rachel Armstrong, an architectural designer at the University of Greenwich, named as one of the UK's top 10 innovators and original thinkers. Rachel is head of the Persephone Project for Icarus Interstellar, an international organisation dedicated to starship research and development. Rachel, the plan is to achieve interstellar space travel within 100 years, the next 100 years, and Persephone is all about so-called living architectures in space. So that obviously means we have to start with what is a living architecture? A living architecture is a structure that possesses some of the properties of living things like growth, movement, sensitivity, but is not technically alive. Traditionally, architecture in the modern world is very inert. It's a barrier between us and the outside world. Living architecture actually pertains to be more ecological, more connected with natural systems. So give us your ideal starship. What would that be in terms of making it a living piece of architecture in space? Living architecture uses new kinds of materials, ones that we wouldn't use in a modern building. For example, it might use things like algae, which are tiny little green plant-like creatures that can harness the sunlight and oxygen and make oils. But they also have uh, properties that would be useful in space. So they um, live in watery habitats and that helps shield radiation, for example. Also, because they're green, they have positive psychological effects, so they make us feel as if we're in Earth's nature. Um, So uh, an ideal living interior to a starship, for me, is one, actually, that isn't static. It's not really about having a bucolic garden, one that is fantastically landscape-like Capability Brown. It's more of an evolutionary system, one that changes along with the colonists and also responds to events within the system. But the idea is to literally grow an ecosystem in a space from the bottom up. So, so hang on, just go back, just go back a stage. Um, so you've got this enormous starship, presumably. Yes. What with thousands of people on board? Um, let's say five hundred. Five hundred people yeah. on board a starship, and is this the idea to make it sort of homely? 
Or make it more like Earth, make it a microcosm of Earth. It is definitely to make a microcosm of an Earth-like system, not necessarily import all the aesthetics that we associate with Earth. So the reason for starting with the bottom-up is we actually want an ecology that is self-sustained, one that actually performs in that particular environment. We can't assume that if we treat, say, um, a 15-kilometre-long cigar-shaped vessel that rotates along its a long axis in order to create a gravity environment that uh, taking a soil and sticking it in the middle of that structure is actually going to p- perform the same way as soil does on earth we, we can't assume that so the idea is that we start to create a system as the starship is being constructed that holds all those natural cycles that we take for granted particularly when we design modern buildings so that's things like wind water cycles, you know, the, 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 the movement of matter on Earth that takes place spontaneously. We can't assume that that's actually also going to happen inside a starship. We have to literally think about where that comes from. So what is this going to look like? Because most people, if they imagine something that's more like a city or, or a, a, a bigger design, would then probably go back to science fiction. And it's very clean, it's white, it's, it's silver, it's steel, it's metallic. Yes, I guess um, science fiction architecture has really been associated with um, the the height of modernism, really. So surfaces are sterile, they're clean, they only have human inhabitants mainly, you know, unless you invite, um, you know, the odd Wookiee on board. You know, for example, um, in Space um, Odyssey 2001, there are no green plants. I'm also struggling to think of any green plants on um, the Enterprise either. There are no pictures (laughs) on the walls either, are there? These is very I suppose when you've got space out the window, you you sort of uh, don't need one. But you're right, you don't even see a family picture. It's not even a pot plant on the bridge. So 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 the idea is to actually you know remember. I guess a term that Bruno Latour uses. So he's a, a a cultural theorist, and he uses the term earthbound, which implies that we take our environment along with us. It's a way of thinking ecologically about our the, the connections that sustain us. Because currently we think of ourselves as being very separate from trees. But in a rarefied environment where everything is interdependent on each other and the space is such that we are aware of those connections, we may not see our identity as being very separate from the living things around us. We're both so desperate to talk to you. Um, This also sounds like a very psychological approach in that if you're going to be doing long-distance travel through space, it's not just the new technology, it's also how we relate to the environment that we're living in and this is where the design and the architecture come, that, is so important. That's absolutely right. So the key part of Persephone is actually to work with sociologists and artists and designers in order to think about the living experience within one of these environments. Why did you call it Persephone? Because the only Persephone I could think of is the one in mythology who ends up having to live with in the underworld with Hades for six months of the year, which I wasn't sure was 
was maybe the right thing you think of as, as space space travel being a bit like being in hell for six months <laughs> of the year. Well, no, actually, it it was exactly because of that because she resurrects herself. So I think in 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 some ways, you know, the f- finding way for nature to come through despite all these you know, sterile environments. I think that is what Persephone embodies. The I guess the imperative that life has to find a way. So many questions. My turn now. <laughs> How feasible is any of this? We are talking about this as if we can just go and build a starship carrying 500 people heading off to the stars, to Earth 2.0, and it's going to have this fantastic extraterrestrial ecosystem in it. How do you even start with something like this? Yeah, well, obviously it's um, it's staged within the 100-year target that, that's currently set. And I, I see the 100-year target as really being a consensus that within 100 years we will need to have a new platform from which we imagine and develop space exploration. So right now we're really designing for interplanetary um, systems. But within 100 years we definitely will have our eyes focused at the stars. I mean, voice Major ones already left this um, solar system. Therefore, you know, we need to think about a strategic approach to achieving that level of, of, of knowledge and training skill-based technology. Why so, do you think we, we, we should do that as, yeah. as humans? We should leave the Earth and, and seek new life, new civilization, boldly go, etc. I think there's a bit of a George Mallory in us that, you know, we, we won't died. be able to help us. He died. We all died. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you subscribe to singularities and um, uh, 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 mechanical immortality, but I I think in order for us to survive, you know, beyond Earth's um, uh, system, you know, as Earthbound, and that we really do need to get much better at designing ecologies. So the staging for me is to think about perhaps a Biosphere Three experiment. So Biosphere Two took place in the early 1990s, and to cut a long story short, it pretty much showed us that we don't know how to build from the bottom up a sustainable ecology for more than two years this was on this a life-bearing sort of, this planet. This was this greenhouse in the desert, essentially. That's, wasn't that's it? right, sort of in Arizona. In the yes, yeah. yes. So, so it, was a, it, was, it was a beautifully designed experiment, had a, you know, a lot of scientific kind of analysis and, and, and support during, during this um, two-year project where eight people you know, lived inside this sealed habitat. But within about a year, they were adding oxygen to the system and there was controversy about what was actually going inside the biosphere. Fortunately, you know, at the end of the day, they could open the doors after two years. But the ecosystem itself was crashing. You know, the oxygen was falling, carbon dioxide was climbing. They were having to stop making compost. That made the plants fail. And it meant that the ants and cockroaches took over. And there were loaded dead fish in, the, in you know, clogging up the pipe system. Wow. Now, that's on a life-bearing planet. <laughs> so on a starship, <laughs> when you've left the solar system and the cockroaches are taking over that's not what you want is it it's not where we really want to be no so although you're looking ahead these are very legitimate questions and thoughts that we we need to be having and who knows what state our planet will be in 20 years let alone 100 that it actually could be potentially if if the worst things happened it could be an arc let alone a a, a way of traveling so are these ideas being taken seriously by other nations because i know it's an inter you know it's an international project i I think what it's doing is it's highlighting the importance of an ecological view of first interplanetary space and then you know in in interstellar space we do have um, sealed life support systems in design so there's projects like the medusa project or she 
and water walls. I mean, all of these are looking at infrastructures for life. But I don't think there's enough investment and, you know, enough development of, of, of these platforms because they're starting to tell us more about the infrastructures for life. And we really, you know, if you think about the inside of the International Space Station, I hear it's a bit like being locked up in a portaloo. Um, I've heard a men's <laughs> locker room as a, as a description. Yes, yeah. it smells a bit. It smells We've a bit discussed of the of, yeah. smells yeah. on, on podcasts but, but if, you, if you had things like, you know, algae, if you had, you know, some of these bacterial systems, you know, it started, a, a let's say, a microecology, they would start to process some of these waste products of, of human existence. And, you know, we could think about what those ecosystems are, even if they're very simple. And these are the questions that Persephone would um, like to address, really through a staged approach. So like I say, I mean, maybe a biosphere three in about 10 years time, you know, thinking about, you know, what is the nature of soil? What is a primitive micro agricultural system that feeds it into itself? Um, you know, I, I think in some ways that biosphere was designing at quite a high level, at a gardening level. This really is trying to look at a, at a lower level. I mean, obviously, you can't design at the atomic scale. But um, so this, this is why soils really becomes the system of choice for the substrate. We could be completely wrong. <laughs> Would you go on this thing? Not yet. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think that we need to be able to develop biosphere threes through every city on Earth. I mean, because if we can get self-sustained systems in which we can live, then a lot of the issues about sustainability in, in future cities throughout this century, you know, will be much improved, really. Uh, Rachel, do stay with us. This is a Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists. You can find Space Boffins on Facebook, Twitter and at spaceboffins.com where Sue's written a short tribute to the great British space scientist Colin Pillinger who sadly passed away in May. Well, last year, European astronaut Luca Parmitano spent 166 days in space. He conducted more than 20 experiments, helped dock four spacecraft and took part in two spacewalks. It was during one of those walks that water leaked in his spacesuit and he almost drowned. Hey, Luca, can you clarify, is it increasing or not increasing? It's hard to tell, but it feels like a lot of water. Well, I met up with Luca shortly after he'd enthralled several hundred children at London Science Museum, and I began with his near-death experience and asked him when he first got an inkling during his spacewalk, or EVA, that something was wrong. Well, the moment I felt the water on the back of my head that wasn't supposed to be there, that's when I thought it's, it's time for me to call somebody on the ground and let them know that the suit is not performing as, as expected. And then what happened next? Well, then we... We had to wait for a decision to come up because you have to understand that an EVA is a very complex procedure. Uh, there are people on the ground that have been planning for months uh, the choreography of the, the spacewalk. Uh, if we are outside, it's because we need to be outside doing performing tasks. And so uh, before calling, calling off an, an EVA, there, there has to be a, a, a very important reason. So at the beginning, it wasn't clear that it, it was potentially dangerous. We thought it, it was just a nuisance. Maybe it would be annoying and I might lose maybe uh, the sound because of water in my ear. But we didn't, nobody thought it was, it was going to be a, a problem. And when did you start to think this is a problem? At what stage? I had a pretty good feeling that it was going to be a problem when the water covered my eyes and my nose. <laughs> That's a bit of an understatement, isn't it? And had you ever, in your training, had any 
emergency procedure like this ever arisen? Because it's pretty unusual. Well, this was the first time it ever happened, and uh, hopefully it will be the last time it ever happened. And so we had no idea that something like this could even happen. So we didn't have an emergency procedure for this sort of happening. However, we are trained to react to emergency procedures of a different nature that require our immediate um, re-entry inside the space station. So what is important in that case is to, to be able to navigate yourself and your suit safely back to, back to the, air, the airlock. And that was what really saved my life, the fact that in, the instructors um, trained me on the ground, underwater, to know the spacecraft well, to be able to basically navigate in the blind because I wasn't able to see anything. I had water in my eyes and it was night, uh, which in space, night means absolute darkness. So that, that was what really saved my life is that the effort that comes before the flight from through the, the people that trained me, the people on the ground that called, it, called the EVA off even, when, even before it became a problem. Did you ever seriously think, this is it, this, my last sight is going to be of the Earth from space? No, I never thought about that. I was more thinking, how, how, what can I do to save myself um, in, in emergencies, any kind of emergency, whether you're flying an airplane or uh, floating in space or driving a car. I think that the best way to react is always to concentrate on the solution rather than the problem. We've interviewed Chris Hadfield recently, <laughs> yes, on our uh, podcast before, and we were also talking about the, the dangers of space, particularly regarding to the rise of space tourism, <laughs> that, and that he felt that perhaps most people don't realise that you know, we may do it well, Europe does it well, NASA does it well, but actually there are still inherent dangers in what we're doing. Do you feel the same way about the rise of space tourism? So obviously um, space is a very harsh environment, and... Our engineers are so good that they make it look easy. They build machines that keep us alive and that, that we can work on for a long time and that performs wonderfully. They're really good, and so we forget how dangerous it is. We forget that this is still exploration. We are still explorers. We are not settlers. We are not, we are not colonizers yet. Space tourism is it's certainly something that will develop because... If people are interested and, and, and they're able to pay the money that is it's required, they will be able to go. I think that there will be precautions put in place where the tourists will be taken care of by professional astronauts. But on the other hand, I, I don't believe that you can limit access to something like space. The last thing I want to say is that, in general, I think that if it furthers space exploration, if it brings interest and money into the space programs, I say, why not? And hopefully everything will go well. Now, your mission, May till November mm -hmm. last year, you saw a number of dockings while you were there and two spacewalks. What for you was your highlight? What did you take away from that period of time? I took away six months of spaceflight. And what appealed most? Six months the of spaceflight. Space <laughs> the, the most amazing thing that we did up there was living, living in space living and working in, in an environment like the International Space Station. One thing that I always say is that we, for, we forgot how to, how to wander. And we take something like the International Space Station for granted. But it's the biggest spacecraft ever built. It's bigger than anything I could ever imagine. It's up there, 400 kilometers, flying at 20,000 kilometers an hour, fully working with a, with a crew of six people, five very modern labs, 
all in space and it's there and it's such a wonder that it's there. You say wonder, that's an interesting word to hear from an astronaut because often you hear that the complaint, if you like, from astronauts is that they don't get the time to wonder, that they have so many experiments to do because people sort of assume on the ground that you're up there looking out the window all the time. But actually, you're kept incredibly busy. Pretty much every minute is accounted for, isn't it? It is. So we we don't have a lot of free time, but I think that's fair. It's such a privilege that we have to pay back and... My personal approach was, was that while I was in orbit, time did not belong to me. It belonged to the people that sent me up there, which is everybody. Because it's your taxes that pay for my flight, it's your, it's your taxes that pay for, for what I'm doing up there, for the experiments, for the science, for the technology. So my time, as far as I'm concerned, belongs to you. So uh, if I'm busy, then it, it should be so. It should, I should be even busier. I, don't, I, wouldn't, I didn't mind working extra hours. And then whatever little time I had, for free, I took the liberty to share it. And yeah, you what, were very active on um, Twitter. Well, Twitter, Facebook, social media. What I discovered is that if you if you take your time and then and then share it with other people, then it looks like you have more time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm one of your followers, so absolutely. Now I know you have a master's in experimental test flight engineering, but I was interested to see that your your first your degree is in politics, political sciences, political sciences, yes. exactly. <laughs> so, what do you think then of the political situation at the moment, and how it might affect um, future space missions between with with Russia, effectively? So, I'm not a politician, and also at my level, we don't really follow policy and politics of spaceflight. What I can answer is from my operational point of view, and this is what I can say. It is wonderful that on, on orbit there are, no, there are no limits within the space station. We do have a Russian segment, an American segment, a European lab. We have a Canadian arm and a Japanese lab. But It's without boundaries. There are no boundaries, and we, we are a crew, and we work as a crew, and... It's uh, enriching to have different cultures coming together. The common goal is what unites us, and hopefully we can set an example on the ground for, for people to understand that the, the limits, the boundaries, are the strongest ones are inside us. They're not outside. And if we, if we can get rid of them inside, then there will be no limits outside. Do you plan on flying again, or is, is this it for you? I wish I could plan, but uh, it's it really it's not something that uh, that depends on us. If if it were up to me, I'd, I'd be ready to fly again right away. Um, I consider my mission right now to to support the other astronauts to fulfill my job as the ambassador of the Italian semester of the European presidency, and to to do well in whatever assignment I get in the next years. I have a class of uh, six astronauts. They have all been assigned, and it's, now it's their time. It's their time to shine. It's their time to perform. It's their time to have fun and to train. It's my job to support them. What would your advice be for Britain's astronaut, Tim Pete? To have fun and enjoy his time because he is such an incredible person. He will do well just being himself. He doesn't need any advice. <laughs> and finally, do you dream of space because... Most people, well, I say most people, it's probably most people I know <laughs> dream of being in space. I wouldn't say everybody does. But do you ever dream of it here down on Earth? I don't know how to answer that question because I'm, I don't remember my dreams. It plagues me. But 
I really don't. I wake up in the morning and I have no idea what I dreamt during the night. But I wake up happy most mornings and if I, I and I like to think that maybe it's because I've been dreaming about about space. Certainly I I dream about going back. If there is such a thing as space sickness and that it's hard to go back, then for me it started the moment I opened that hatch back on the ground. European astronaut Luca Palmitano and huge thanks to London Science Museum for sorting that interview out and also to the European Space Agency's Carl Walker for giving us that tip-off that he was in town. He sounds great, doesn't he? He was lovely. They're all lovely. That class of astronauts, that European class, 2009 of astronauts, are fantastic. The ones I've met, they're just, they're just brilliant. I, I love his, I mean, some great quotes in there. Um, I liked his uh, concentrate on the solution rather than the problem. And I'll take that from him. I wouldn't take that from any old management consultant yes, or one of these training water courses. water over your eyes. I saw yeah. Rachel's face when, <laughs> when he said that when the water was above my eyes and your face, you just looked aghast. But Rachel, you- doesn't this reinforce that space is horrible? That actually, really, do we really want to do this stuff? Well, I think the thing that excited me was the talk of a vision. I mean, so there was a purpose to the mission. And, you know, thinking back on the on, on the issues with starships, I mean, you really have to know why you're there. And I think having a purpose and not just being, you know, lost lost in moments or lost in the actual experience um, uh, really does play a vital role. In and, and I think that these existential questions are really quite critical. The the astronaut was thinking about the people that he's serving back on Earth and the use of his time. And I was thinking what the equivalent would be on a starship because, you know, the distance between the colonists, for example, and Earth um, is going to increase. So, you know, what then are the psychological conditions for being on a starship? And I was thinking about um, Michael Mortner's book on um, directed panspermia the idea that uh, we should be seeding life throughout the, co- uh, the cosmos. And at the start of this book, he has this incredible manifesto, uh, which is really unusual for a science book. So most of the science textbooks I've read do not start with manifestos. <laughs> but this really positions a human duty to actually increase the liveliness of the cosmos. And I was just reflecting then back on, you know, the, the I guess, the existential reasons for being on the um, ISS that the, you know, the astronauts discussing. They're not colonisers, though. It was interesting he said that. Yes. That, that this is a long way to go between six people in orbit. Yes. And a starship. And identified it ex- as explorers. I thought that was that was quite well, insightful for me. It must have given you hope too, particularly when he's talking about the lack of boundaries in space. Yes, um, and, and also about relationships, how relationships are important. So for me, it's not just about the human relationships, but the relationships of the ecology and the microflora that come with us. Well, it's nine years since Google launched its Maps service, giving us all access to satellite pictures of almost everywhere on Earth. And who hasn't typed in their postcode to see their house from space? Well, Google buys most of those satellite images for the service from Digital Globe, as do Apple and Microsoft. And Digital Globe's new satellite, Worldview 3, is due to be launched in the next couple of months. It'll be one of the most sophisticated commercial Earth observation spacecraft ever built. A few months ago, I joined Programme Manager at Ball Aerospace in Boulder, Colorado, Jeff Dirks, to see the satellite taking shape. 
we're looking through the window into one of the clean rooms here and in typical American fashion with your, your clean rooms and these your white walls but with enormous stars and stripes painted onto the, the wall uh, looking down on the, on the work going down there. It makes the government customers unbelievably happy. <laughs> when, you, when you look down at that from, the, from the, uh, the, the stars and stripes and in the corner there is a large wardrobe-sized satellite. What you're seeing here is the core spacecraft bus, basically the, the power, command, and handling, and care and feeding of the instrument and the whole spacecraft. Off to the right of it is the propulsion module. The propulsion tank is kind of the jiffy-pop-looking protuberance sticking out of the top there. Down below is the CMG module, control moment gyros. allows us to move much more often, much quicker. Worldview and the other digital globe satellites are constantly looking around. So they, we upload an image plan. You know what? What should I take pictures of today? And it just it figures that all out on orbit, and then just spends the day pointing around different spots on the Earth that are that are relatively close to its, it, you know, underneath it. So it's still, spin, it, it's still spin, it's spinning around the Earth right. in, in so an orbit. It's, so it's sort of orbiting exactly. the Earth every ninety so it's, minutes. It's in a polar orbit. This will be around, like, say, 660 kilometers. And so as it's orbiting uh, from north to south, the Earth is spinning underneath it. So it takes about 90 minutes to do an orbit. And about 15 orbits, it, it basically c- covers the Earth in the day. Every couple of days, it will see every spot on the Earth. It's really, this is, at its simplest, a camera in space. A it, decent at, at resolution. At simplest, it is a digital, decent resolution digital camera in space. You're, exact, you're exactly right. Just like you would carry in your, in your pocket. It's just done with mirrors instead of lenses. But the same thing. But these are pictures from this satellite that we're all familiar with. These are the pictures that end up on, on Google. That's exactly right. On, on Bing, on Google Earth, if, you know, everybody nowadays i'm sure has looked up their house or their downtown or their business or something on google earth and and seen those images also if you're watching the news you know it gives me a lot of pride if on the evening news i see down in the corner a little digital globe logo that the image they're showing on the news program was from them so it, they're quite prevalent Will this give us, uh, this new generation uh, satellite, a better resolution of our house and our, and our garden, our backyard, our, our so, neighborhood? So that's grown over time also. The, uh, the resolution is a combination of the size of the primary mirror and then the orbit you're in. Right now, Digital Globe has a commercial license to distribute half-meter resolution imagery. That's what they can sell to the, to the public. Uh, this spacecraft has the capability, if they lower it, though, to be, to be much better than that. So they, they are in the process of applying for uh, a quarter-meter commercial license. And they can already sell that data to the government, but not to Google. <laughs> Does there come a point where the resolution of these sorts of commercial satellites, the, the sort of images that end up on, on Google or are commercially available, become very similar to the, the kind of spy satellites, the top-secret satellites? Well, I mean, people have often called these, you know, kind of public spy satellites or whatever, but one of our customers always kind of told a funny story is that uh, we can resolve something that's a half meter in size. If you have something that's a half meter in size and you're in your backyard, you should be proud of that. <laughs> you know? 
Do you think people are now taking this stuff for granted? I was trying to think when Google Earth came about. It's not many years, and yet we're now expecting to be able to see our homes from space. You, everybody is. For you know, on the news for you know. If, if you watch the news and they're talking about a Korean, North Korean nuclear reactor, you go, where's the, where's the picture? You know, you want to see what, what they're talking about. People expect that now. So I, I hope people don't take it for granted but, or want to keep buying the product. <laughs> and, and, I mean, I know this isn't your area. You're, you're building the satellite. But when can we expect new images of our homes and our cities? Because at the moment, you know, I, I check back every so often. It's you know, the same image for a few years ago. Yeah, and, and so, you know, if you, if you look at what Digital Globe... Digital Globe takes orders, and so they fill specific orders for specific missions. And then what they're also doing is is filling the library. So, so uh, large metropolitan areas get imaged most often, probably about once a year or so. They, they pick Denver or London and, and, and rescan that and, and get it into, get it into their, their database. How often Google buys that then and updates that uh, is, is up to them. You know, it is kind of, my house isn't, the, you know, where's my shed in the backyard? You know, people ask that and they say, well, you know, check back in a year or so. There's, you can actually turn on in Google Earth the uh, layers information as to the, when the image was taken or at least put in their catalog. But, uh, it's pretty exciting, though, isn't it? It must be exciting to work on this sort of thing. It is. You know, I think if you talk to most of us here, we've been kind of space geeks for all our lives, and so that's kind of where we, we ended up here. And, you know, I, I keep track of you know, with satellite tracking programs on a computer at home. And if it's coming by in the evening and I, I'll step out in the backyard and, you know, there's the satellite I built flying over. You can see it. So that's, and that's pretty neat. <laughs> the extremely affable Jeff Dirks, project manager for the Worldview 3 satellite, which is due for launch in the next couple of months. Space geeks of the world unite. Thanks again to our guest, Dr. Rachel Armstrong, for some extremely thought-provoking stuff there. We'll put some pictures and links from this podcast on our Facebook page and no doubt on Twitter via at Space Boffins. And before we go, just an update on the Mars One candidate, the astrophysics graduate Gillian Finity. Well, after getting through to the last 1,000 for the Mars One project, she took the difficult decision to withdraw and complete her PhD instead with a view to going through the official European Space Agency astronaut selection process in the future. And if anyone can get onto that, I reckon Gillian can. Certainly of the two, I would rather go into orbit and come back with the European Space Agency (laughs) than go to Mars and die, which is essentially what uh, Mars One are offering. The only question mark over that, of course, is whether there will be or when there will be another European selection, because there hasn't been one since 2009. Well, hopefully by the time uh, Gillian completes her her PhD. (laughs) She'll be spot on for the next one. Well, that's the Space Boffins podcast, produced in partnership with The Naked Scientists and supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and ABSL Space Products. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. We'll be back next month. Thanks for listening.